0: It's wonderful to, uh, you know, to have God's Word to keep us, uh, if you will, in the truth. Amen. Men's imaginations are very imaginable, and uh, you get, move away from the Word of God, and your imagination will take you places. It's it's unbelievable what can happen. And so, this morning, as we take up the Book of Acts again together, as we're going verse by verse through this glorious, inspired church history, when we were last together, we remembered, brethren, that uh, Paul and Barnabas have just fled from the city of Iconium in order to be, avoid being stoned to death. And so the Holy Spirit of God relocates them to the cities of Lystra and Derbe in the region of Lyconia to carry on with their appointed task, which is the preaching of the gospel there, which is always their central theme, amen? The Holy Spirit takes them and by sovereignty moves him there, moves them there to preach. As Paul is preaching, you remember that there was a man, amen, that was crippled from his mother's womb, In other words, he was crippled from birth, he had never walked before, and uh, the Holy Spirit of God, as Paul was preaching, amen, healed this man. And so there was a great miraculous, as we like to call the apostolic gifts that were obviously going through the Apostle Paul and Barnabas as they were there. They are no longer, brother, let me just say this, they are no longer going today. We still believe, don't we, brother, in faith healing. We believe God still heals. But there's no man like the Apostle, the apostolic gifts that they would use to heal people. And then what, what What was God doing? He was confirming them as his missionaries, as his men who were speaking for them. And so this is what has just taken place. They've seen this glorious, miraculous healing that's taken place. And it is here this morning, brethren, in our inspired narrative that we have arrived, this particular portion of Scripture. And so as we take the Word of God up again together this morning, look there with me, if you would, at verse... Number 11, as this glorious narrative continues. Verse number 11, And when the people saw what Paul had done, they lifted up their voices, saying in the speech of Lyconia, The gods are come down to us in the image of men. What an amazing statement we see here. One of the things that we notice immediately, brethren, in our text, is that the heathen religions will indeed counterfeit the truth of Scripture. This is one of Satan's greatest tricks, is to counterfeit, if you will, the Holy Scripture. Satan, who is the father of lies, amen, Jesus said that about him. He is the father of lies, he is a murderer from the beginning. But think of that, the Lord Jesus himself told us who he is. He is the father of lies, and so he likes to, if you will, counterfeit the truth of Scripture, amen. That which glorifies God the Father, that which saves. And again, what we have before us, brethren, is we're going to look in our text we're going to see something I call the counterfeit incarnation. There these these pagans believe in a counterfeit incarnation. But again, they are mimicking the truth of God. And I want you to see this this morning. The Lord Jesus Christ, in His incarnation, is foundational to salvation, brother. It is absolutely foundational to salvation. So let's look at that here together this morning for just a moment as we lay the groundwork out. Look at John chapter 1, a very familiar portion of Scripture again. What these men have fallen for, the satanic lie of the, if you will, the fake incarnation. Here we see in John chapter 1, again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to all of us. John, as he's led by the Spirit of God, he writes these words in verse number 1. As soon as, where's my Bible? Here we go. John chapter 1, look at verse number 1. The Bible says this In the beginning was the Word. And the Word what? was with God, and the Word was God. Amen? And so we're seeing here again that John, as he's defending the Godhead, the deity of Christ, he's saying, no, actually, Jesus is the Word. He is the very uh, image of God. That's what the word logos means. It's the image of God. He is very God himself. In fact, how did God appear to us? Look there at verse 14. Again, he lays the groundwork. He's the Word. He's the very image. He's the logos of God. Well, how did he appear? Look at verse 14. And the word was made, what? Flesh, and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And so that's the, if you will, God's truth. That's the biblical incarnation of Christ. That's him putting on flesh. Amen. Look at Philippians chapter 2. Again, just a couple of verses here this morning. As we see how men have not changed. It's amazing, isn't it, Brother uh, you study scripture, and you see scripture, and the gospel never changes because brethren men never change. Their hearts are the same today as they were in the beginning. Their hearts are as hard today as they've ever been, and therefore we can never soften the gospel, because it is the gospel that is what? The power of God unto salvation. Amen. And so this is what we're seeing here. Look, if you would, Philippians chapter 2. The incarnation of Christ, one of the foundations to salvation, something that one must believe in order to be saved. Philippians chapter 2, look at verse number 6, again a very familiar portion of scripture. Verse 5, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God. Amen, that's a glorious statement. But made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant, And is made in the likeness of men. Do you see that there again? This is the same statement that's made. The gods have come down to us in the likeness of men. And so they're literally repeating exactly a biblical truth. But it's being applied, amen, to the pagans who are there. They're applying it to someone other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Again, I call it a, if you will, a fake incarnation. In the likeness of men. And being found in the fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death... Even the death of the cross. Wherefore God hath hath highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name. And again, brother, the exclusivity of Christ. This is where we're going to go this morning. When you leave here this morning, the Lord Jesus Christ is exclusive in salvation. And what do I mean by that? There's no other name given unto him by which men must be saved. Amen. Amen. We live in a pluralistic society where one God is as good as another. And what's interesting in our text, we're going to see that that's exactly what they believe. That one God is just as good as another God. And, brethren, the Lord Jesus, the apostles, the writers of the Bible itself, the New Testament, were very narrow-minded. They were very exclusive. The Lord Jesus himself said, I am the what? We can can repeat it, brethren. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no man cometh to the Father but by me. Amen. And so... We must continue to stand firm there. But here again, we see this statement that's made here. Made in the likeness of men. That is the biblical truth. This is what Satan is is mimicking or trying to counterfeit in our text. Because this is what they believe. They believe the gods came down in the likeness of men. Look at one more, First Timothy chapter 3. There are many. There's many in the Old Testament. There's many in the New Testament. First Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse number 16. Look here again. What Paul is these... Writing to young Timothy, uh, under the inspiration of God, look what he says in verse 16. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God, the Lord Jesus, God himself, amen, was manifest in the flesh. That's what? That's his incarnation. He came in the flesh. This, again, is foundational to salvation, to believing what the Lord God says concerning the Lord Jesus Christ in his word, amen, You remember 1 John chapter 4. Let's just flip there quickly. 1 John chapter 4. Again, this is foundational to salvation. One must believe what God said concerning his son coming in the flesh. Look at 1 John chapter 4. Look what he, John again, is he's defending the deity, the incarnation of Christ. We know what he was dealing with. The, if you will, the aberrant doctrines, the aberrant teachings concerning the Lord Jesus even during his day. John, again hears he's led by the Spirit of God, writes this in verse number 1, 1 John chapter 4. Beloved, anytime you see the word beloved in Holy Scripture, it is who? Brethren, I wish it was Sunday morning I could ask that question. It's always Christians. It's always brothers, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Brethren, believe not every spirit. What does that mean? What exactly is he saying? Again, as you, if you could sit and listen to what was being taught, The ever doctrines concerning who Christ was. When John wrote this, you would understand. Believe not every spirit. And that means the spirit of the teaching. That which was being taught concerning him. Look at what it was. But try the spirits whether they be of God. Because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ is come in the flesh is of who? God. That's acknowledging his incarnation. That is foundational two, again, you're going to hear me repeat myself. Foundational to the theology of salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. Look what he says there. John says he continues, battling the great battle concerning the man of Christ, who he was. Was he the perfect God-man? Yes, he was. He was perfect God, perfect man. Remember, went through Mark. I mean, what a glorious gospel to show us the the two, if you will, together, living perfect in harmony. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God, verse 2. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist, where we have heard that it should come, and even now is already in the world. So again, the deity of Christ, him coming in his incarnation, has already under attack early, early, early on. And again, it just flowed out from their brother, and It continued to flow out as they were dealing with this. The response by many, in our text this morning to God's miraculous healing was not to the gospel, but rather to their own mythological tales. And brethren, again, this is really important. The pagans in Lystra did believe, as I said, in Satan's unholy uh, counterfeit incarnation. The gods are come down to us in the likeness of men. This stems, brethren, from a fable. (laughs) It's amazing, isn't it, how historically accurate the Bible is and how amazing it's all such truth. It stems from a fable uh, that Zeus and Hermes came to earth in the neighboring district of Phrygia disguised as human beings. And this is something, again, a fable that's well-known throughout southern Galatia, where these guys are at right now. This is where they're at. So Paul, again, he's going to have to address this fable that's out there, that Zeus and they came to earth as, <laughs> as human beings. They seek lodging. Think of this, brother. <laughs> See, this is one of the things the sodomites, and I don't want to get off on a track here, but this is one of the things the sodomites will always say. It. The reason God destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah is because why? Because, well, nobody was hospitable to them. There was no hospitality. No, actually, that's not why he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. There was three things there. Amen? Remember? There was pride, fullness of bread, and then finally sodomy, which ended up uh, idleness, which ended up. But the idea here, this is what they say. They, they sought this lodging, and no one shows them hospitality nor takes them in. Finally, an old peasant couple... Again, brethren, Philemon and his wife Bacchus welcomed them into their house as strangers. Therefore, the gods were angry with all the other people and destroyed all the other people. Amen. And so what they don't want to do now is Paul and Barnabas are there and they see this miraculous healing. The last thing they want to do in Lystra is to not appease the gods. Because the last thing they want to do is have themselves all destroyed again because nobody showed them hospitality the first time around. It it is a stunning fable. A stunning tale in which men believe. And it continues, it's an amazing thing. In fact, the gods were angry and destroyed everyone else, but they were gracious to Philemon and Bacchus, and in which their humble cottage was transformed into a temple of worship for the pagan gods. This is why, the relevancy of Scripture, this is why, again, Paul has to, as he's led by the Spirit of God, address these things. Amen. Again, brother, we'll say it again. Men haven't changed. They have not. We've been confronted the last couple of months, whether we're out preaching against killing your own children or whether we're out preaching against don't dress like men or like ladies and, and, and what, groom our children. Don't do that. And it's an amazing thing. Well, how do you know your God's the only God? Prove to me that God exists in all these things, which we will in a moment as we look around. Even pagans know when you look at nature, because Paul references it, doesn't he? He looks up and goes, all of this order did not come from an explosion and some accident. It came from a God-gloriously-designed design, if I can say that. Nobody in their right mind is going to look out and say, well, this is an accident. Well, this massive explosion caused all this order. No, it is a glorious order of God, and we're going to see that because Paul tells them, look around you. Look how gracious God is to you. Look what he's provided for you. It's a stunning thing. But this was a problem, brethren, in human nature from the very beginning. In fact, Paul has to deal with it again. Look at Acts chapter 28. Look here again. It isn't just here that they think he's a goddess. It's it's quite amazing when uh, when you see this. And again, you understand human nature. You understand that it hasn't changed. Therefore, those who are trying to quote unquote, well, number one, you could never believe in the sovereignty of God. You will never believe in the sovereignty of God if you think you're going to trick somebody into, into trusting Christ. If you think if we just say the right nice things. If we just say things like, well, you know, we shouldn't say the Bible says that. We should just say, well, James thinks this. This is what they're doing. And you think that softening the gospel and the truth of God is going to save anybody? It will not. It will not. That's why we must be faithful preachers the gospel of the word of God. I know people who come here all the time. Pastor Mike sounds like a broken record. You know why? Because Paul was a broken record. Peter was a broken record. Remember these things. Remember, remember, remember. Even though you know them, remember them. Yeah, we got to remember it. Don't look around yourselves. Don't look at other churches and go, wow, that building's getting full. Or that building's getting full. Well, God might be blessing that building, but it may be cursing it too, as Paul Washer once said. The people may be gathering there because God's giving what they want in their flesh. Oh yeah. Generally, Bible-believing, preaching churches are not very big. They are not. They're generally pretty small. Some now are bigger, but for the most part, they are small. And there's a reason for that. Because again, the gospel does its own dividing, doesn't it? When you stick to the Word of God... It divides by itself. It does exactly what the Spirit sends it to do. I don't have to be tricky. The other elders don't have to get up here and be tricky concerning the Word of God. Look at Acts 28. Again, this is something that Paul had to deal with, as we see church history unfolding, in this glorious, inspired narrative. Look at 28. Look at verse number three. Look there, if you wouldn't. And when Paul had gathered a bundle of sticks and laid them on the fire, there came a viper out of the heat and fastened on his hand. And when the barbarians saw the venomous beast hang on his hand, they said among themselves, No doubt this man is a murderer, whom though he hath escaped the sea, yet vengeance uh, suffers not to live. He shook off the beast under the fire and felt no harm. Howbeit they looked when he should have, been, should have swollen or fallen down dead suddenly. But after they had looked a great while and saw no harm come to him, they changed their minds and said that he was a god. You see that there again. They're fighting this thing, and, and, and incidentally, by the way, it is a most stunning thing when you think about what Paul and all of these men, again, is there, as churches as the church is growing and as they're being, if you will, again, we look at persecution as a bad thing. Actually, God uses it to spread the gospel. He spreads us out, just like we're seeing in the book of Acts. And again, we see this dealing with this superstitious stuff. It's amazing. I like what one pastor said. It said, idols do not come off from the throne of one's heart easily. Idols do not come off of one's heart easily, he says. Especially if they've been bowed down and served for many years. And this is exactly what we're seeing. This is exactly what Paul is confronting right here. As these men are trying, and we're going to see, are going to try and call them gods and then offer up sacrifices to them. It's a stunning thing when you think about that. Now look back here at Acts chapter 14. Look what they call them. And this is, you know, again, by design. There's no happenstance. There's no accidents. There's no nothing in Scripture. In fact, if you understand the fable they were believing, you'll know why they called Paul and Barnabas what they called them. Again, look there, if you would, at verses 12 and 13. They came down in the likeness of men, using a biblical term that Satan counterfeited, the counterfeit incarnation. Then they say this. And they called Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius Because he was the chief speaker, you'll understand that statement that Luke puts in there once you understand it. Verse 13, Then the priest of Jupiter, which was before the city, brought oxen and garlands unto the gates, and would have done sacrifice unto the people. Luke here records for us, brethren, their deep-rooted superstitions. I mean, it reaches an apex here, as they call Barnabas Jupiter and Paul Mercurius, or Mercury, that's another Terminology that may be used in your Bible. Jupiter and Mercurius are the names used in Roman mythology that correspond with Zeus and Hermes, the names used in the Greek mythology, which are the gods of their fable. This is exactly who they're talking about. This is why they called them that. Look, the gods have come down. Zeus, or Jupiter, was said to be the chief god who gave uh, power to the other gods and holds great sway over them. So in other words... We can dedu- deduct from this portion of scripture that Barnabas evidently was a more imposing figure than Paul, because they called him Zeus. Zeus was the kind of the chief leader, if you will. However, they called Paul what Hermes, Mercury, said to be the chief messenger of the gods and was considered a god of eloquence. Therefore, God was, the, or the Bible says there, if you look in verse number twelve, that. Paul was the what? The chief speaker. And so this is why they named him who they named him. They're picking their fable gods, their Greek mythology. And they're saying, hey, he looks just like Mercurius and he looks like Zeus. Amen. So that's what we're going to call these two gods that have come down. It's an amazing thing. In fact, if you look there, again, in verse 13, the priest of Jupiter was going to do sacrifice. Look at verse 18. In fact, this thing gets frenzied out of control. Not only are they trying to do it. They must be restrained from offering sacrifices of these false gods to Paul and Barnabas. Look at verse number 18. Look what it says. And with these sayings, scarce restrained they the people, that they had not done sacrifice unto them. Again, brethren, we see a most amazing, uh, if you will, a most amazing thing here. Men's religious desires. You do know that God put... The desire to worship in you. You are born that way. You will worship one of two things. Amen? I mean, I know there's a plethora of things out there. But you will worship one of two things. You will either worship the devil. You will worship yourself. Or you will worship the God of the Bible. One of those two. Okay? There's not... You're either saved or you're lost. There's no in-between just like this. You either worship self or you'll worship the God of the Bible. This is what... Happens, and this is absolutely enough Those categories carry a lot of, they cover a lot of area, but if I don't have time to cover every area. But you notice, again, that they are making Paul and Barnabas gods of their own imaginations. This is what they're doing. They are lifting them up as gods of their own imagination. In fact, again, Paul is done here with Jupiter. Look here at Acts chapter 19. Again, this is something that we see, again, over and over again. Paul confronts these things through the book of Acts, Again, men have not changed. Look at Acts chapter 19. Look at verse number 34. Uh, Again, a very familiar portion of Scripture to us. Paul now is in Ephesus. And uh, again, this amazing idol worship, the worship of other gods who are not true, just roll right along. Look here, if you would, at verse number 34. But when they knew that he was a Jew, all with one voice about the space of two hours cried out, Great is Diana of the Ephesians! Why are they crying about Diana? Why would they say, well, Diana, one of the seventh, she was the eighth wonder of the world. Remember that? Back in those days, that's what they called it. It this shrine. The eighth wonder of the world. But it's Diana, specifically. Look at here. And when the the town clerk had appeased the people, uh, he said, Ye men of Ephesus, what man is there that knoweth not how that the city of the Ephesians is a worshiper of the great goddess Diana? And of the image which fell down from where? Jupiter. So now we got Diana, we got Mercury, we got Jupiter, we got all manner of things, we got Zeus. But specifically here, it's tied together because it's interesting that they would bring up uh, Diana here because in mythology, as we know, Diana comes from Zeus's family tree. Diana, actually, in Greek mythology, was a twin to Apollo, who was both the son and daughter of Jupiter. It's amazing, isn't it, how deep... This stuff gets steeped into people's hearts and minds. Again, those idols don't come off the human heart when they've been worshipped all of that time. It is a miraculous working of God alone who removes these things. And we remember that Paul started preaching to them the gospel. That's exactly where it started. But here, instead of glorifying the Lord God of Holy Writ alone, these religious people sparked a frenzied effort to worship God. The God of their own mind, of their own imaginations. It's quite amazing. So again, so we see here they're setting Paul and Barnabas up. The gods have come down like men there before us. What was Paul and Barnabas's response to someone? Most men today would like to be God. <laughs> they do, and they are. They would like to be God, just like Satan. Amen? I'm going to be like God. Hey, Eve, <laughs> by the way, did God really say that to you? Hath God really said? For God knows that when you do this, you'll become like who? Like Him. You'll become knowing good and evil. Yeah. Man is a God of his own God. It's an amazing thing when you think about that, brother. When his heart is hardened, his ears are stopped, he's dead in his sins and trespasses, He's, he's a slave of the Satan himself. It's amazing what men will worship and what they will do. And so Paul here and Barnabas, of course, being Bible believers, Bible-believing Christians, react a certain way. Let's see, brethren, as every Christian should react if someone comes and says that to you. Oh, the gods have come down before us, okay? Brethren, listen, okay? We can't all be Kenneth Copeland, okay? We, We can't all be him who says and uses theology like this. Well, let's just think for a moment. You know, horses produce what? Little horses. Dogs produce little dogs. Cats produce little cats. As he's standing with an evil, demonic grin upon his face. And he says, well, I'm a child of God, therefore I'm a God. Evil Wicked, unholy, godless, tripe. It's amazing what men will do when God lets them and turns them loose. And that's what he's done to that man and several other of them. Just look at him. Demons. He's got a legion of them. Not one or two. There's a legion in that man. But Paul and Barnabas never thought that. Paul and Barnabas never once said that. Look what they did. Look at how they responded biblically to what these men were trying to do for them you're a god. Look there at verses 14, 15 and 16. Which when the apostles Barnabas and Paul heard of they rent their clothes and ran in among the people crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you de- why do you these things? We're also a men of like passions with you." What's he saying? So the first thing he does, he rips his clothes and he runs in and he says, we are humans, just like you. We have light pa- We are just like you. We are not gods, number one. That was the first thing they did. They clarified that very quickly. We are not God. We are humans just like you guys are. Amen. And then and then, number two, when they ripped that open, he says, they rent their clothes together, crying out and saying, Sirs, why do you these things? We are also men of like passions with you, and preach unto you that ye should turn from these vanities unto what? Unto the living God which made heaven and earth and sea and all things that are there in. Well, two reasons. Again, they tore their clothes. Number one, hey, you see this? I'm, I'm human just like you are. Number two, this is, of course, is a God-fearing, Bible-believing Christian's reaction to blasphemy. When one says they are God, that is blasphemy. And Paul and farmers are saying We are not God, number one. We're human just like you. And number two, that's blasphemous to even begin to equate me with God. It's a stunning thing. And this is, again, what we see in Scripture over and over. It wasn't just inconvenience that they were called gods. But it was very much a thing in their own hearts that someone would dare say that about them. Paul tells them here, doesn't he? I'm not God. I'm human just like you are. But then he tells them that they should turn and repent of these unbelievable vanities unto the living God of Holy Scripture, which is what we always preach, isn't it? You, if you're dead in your sins this morning, and the Spirit of God comes and opens up your eyes and your ears and takes that heart of stone out and puts in a heart of flesh, what is one going to do? They're going to turn from something, their own idols, to the living God. Look with me, if you would. uh, If you would look here, First Acts chapter 17, since we're right there. Look at again, Paul, just brethren, I'm telling you. You you get I was telling one of the brothers, sometimes you get weary. You get weary because it seems like you go preach against whatever you're out street preaching against and trying to, you know, preach the gospel to men. You get weary because it's the same thing over and over again, and we see that with Paul. It's the same thing over and over and over again. It just comes in a different form. It's a different time, it's like we were saying this morning before we were praying. Brethren, there's nothing new under the sun not one thing. It's repackaged. It's different in our generation to a degree. Our culture might be a little bit different, but men are still all the same. It's amazing. Look here, Paul again in Acts chapter 17. Look what he says here again, dealing with all of the amazing pluralism that we talk about today. It's amazing. Look at verse number 18 there, if you would. Then certain philosophers... Hey, you want to run from philosophers, okay? Especially an atheist, godless, unbelieving philosopher, because he's got his own ideas. Then certain philosophers of the Epicureans, and we'll get to this text. You go look this up. The Epicureans and Stoics, you can go right online. Did they exist? Of course they did, and they had certain teachings, but we're not going to get into that here. I just want you to see this. Then certain philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics, encountered him, and, and some said... What will this babbler say? Isn't that an interesting term he uses for Paul or a babbler? You know what that word literally means? The word babbler is a picture of a bird who's walking around outside and he's just picking up different things. He's looking and picking for different things. What do I want? What do I want to listen to? I'll listen to this today and I'll hear this tomorrow and I'll listen to this. I'll take this part of theology and I'll do this and this. That's literally what that word means. What's this babbler going to say? This seed picker. Literally, that's the term that's used there. Others some, he seemeth to be a setter forth of strange gods. There it is again. Because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. There's the exclusivity of Christ. Paul never moved from that, obviously. Verse 19, and they took him and brought him on to Easy for me to say, right? Ariokabas. Saying, may we know what this new doctrine where thou speakest is. For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. For in the Athenians and strangers, uh, they spent their time in nothing else, what but either to tell or hear some new thing. Isn't it interesting? Again, you can be in a good Bible-believing church, but you want to go hear some new thing. There's nothing new concerning the preaching of the gospel. There's nothing new. But these men are sitting around like a bunch of seed bird pickers looking for something new. We want to hear something new. That's where men get themselves into all kinds of trouble. Look what it says. Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill and said, Ye men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are too superstitious. You're very religious, in other words, that word means. You're superstitious about this, and you're looking for this, and you're superstitious about that. Verse 23, 4, I passed by and beheld your devotions. I found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God... They were trying to cover all their bases, brother. If we miss this one, we're going to hit it with this one. If we miss it with that one, we're going to hit it with this one. But one thing we know, we want to make sure that all the gods are appeased. Amazing pluralism. Whom therefore ye, God, Paul uh, continues here. Whom therefore ye ignorantly worship him, declare I unto you again, God, making a very exclusive uh, declaration about the God of holy writ. God that hath made the world and all things therein, seeing that he is Lord of heaven and of earth, and dwelleth not in temples made with hands. Neither is worshipped with men's hands, as though he needed anything, seeing he giveth life to all and breath to all things. Again, Paul is drawing them back. You got this uh, a little, uh, you know, worship center over here for this God. You got a little worship center over there for that one. You got a little one over here and you got one behind you. Let me tell you about the God of the Bible alone. This is what we see and he says it's just an amazing thing, the unknown God. look at First Thessalonians, look at here turning again there's a turning away from those things. And if you look here at First Thessalonians that's what repentance really means. There's really a dual factor there. There's a changing of the mind and there's a turning of one's life. a changing of the mind concerning Christ and the gospel, which is repentance, that's where it begins. and then there's a turning away if you will of one's actions. Look here at 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, look what Paul says as he's writing again to these brothers who were indeed massive idol worshippers, massive worshippers of anything that moved. Look here at verse number 7, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, look at verse number 7. So that ye were in samples to all that believe in Macedonia and Achaia. And from uh, you sounded out the word of the Lord, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith to God' word is spread abroad, so that we need not speak anything. For they themselves show us of what manner of entering in we had unto you, and how ye turn from God, or turn to God uh, from idols, to serve the living and true God. There, Paul is again. There's a turning away, you were serving idols, you were worshipping this, worshipping that. There's this glorious repentance that takes place. And again, we notice the terminology, the living God. Because the doorknob they worship, the bench they worship, the stone they're worshipping out here, the tree they might be worshipping is not the living God. They're worshipping something that can't speak, as Paul said, as many of the prophets said of old. You're worshipping something that is just completely unholy. Paul did indeed call the Listerian crowd to turn from the, turn to the real God, the one who stands behind all of creation from their fable gods. This is what he's telling them to do. Repent, turn to the one true living God. And well, look what Paul tells them then after that. Look here again at Acts chapter 14 as uh, Paul continues, Luke continues his inspired recording as Paul continues his inspired preaching. We see here again in Acts chapter 14, look what Paul says to them. He says all of that, and then he points them to that which they cannot deny, even a pagan knows. Acts chapter 14, look at verse number 17, look what he says. Nevertheless, he, God, that's amazing. He left not himself without witness, and that he did good and gave us rain from heaven and fruitful seasons, filling our hearts with food and gladness. Brother, this is a glorious statement of God's common grace. It's amazing, isn't it, how God is so good to us? He gives us food, he gives us drink, he gives us all of these things. Amen. His common grace to all of mankind. He shows them this goodness. Paul says, This is the kind of God that I worship. He, if you will, points them to God's natural revelation. God's natural revelation. He first preached the gospel, then he turns them to God's natural revelation. And brethren, I could turn you out to it too, just like he does to them. You see out them windows, you see them trees, you see that grass growing, you see that crop of field over there, you see all that. That is the common grace of God being kind to the good and to the evil. It's an amazing thing. And Paul points them to this very thing, to creation. He says, God hasn't left him without a witness. That's why when someone comes screaming up to you and says, prove God exists, and you point them out and say again, look at the order, brethren. Look at this, how this works. Now this fall, every fall, brother, I see the glorious working of God. These green leaves out here on these trees, it's a stunning thing. And not only do they turn colors, they don't all turn the same colors. Think of that for a moment. Think of it. Think of God's glorious creation and how beautiful it is. And Paul tells them, look, this God of the Bible, he's the one who created all of these things. He's the one that's been so good to you and so kind to you and gracious unto you, even at this very moment. He points them to this glorious revelation of God, this natural revelation. In fact, Job, the oldest book in the Bible, turn with me there if you would for just a moment, Job chapter 12, look there with me if you would. Job himself these words recorded right here in Job chapter 12. Look at here what Job said. Look at here what the book of Job says. The whole book, amen, I love the book of Job. Job chapter 12, look at here. Look at the direction that they get pointed to here. Look at verse number 7. Job chapter 12, look at verse number 7. But ask now the beasts, they shall teach thee, and the fowls of the air, they shall teach thee, well, you think the beasts are going to come down and talk? They're going to, the fowls of the air are going to fly on down and, uh, and teach them something? No. When you look at the beasts, when you look at the fowls of the air, you know that God intricately designed it. They'll tell you that. Even the pagans that Paul's talking to would be able to relate to that. Look at this, verse 8. Or speak to the earth, and it shall teach thee, and the fishes of the sea shall declare unto thee, Who knoweth not in all these that the hand of the Lord has wrought this? Who knows that? You look at it, there's no denying it. Look at this. In whose hand is the soul of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Looking at God's creation is indeed a natural revelation that God has left in place. And he's left himself not without a witness. Isn't that what Paul wrote in Romans? Look at Romans chapter 1. Just a couple of portions of scripture here. Look at Romans chapter 1. Men come up and say, prove God to me, and which is what we've heard a lot of lately. Actually, God is setting His mark and has set His mark. It's amazing, isn't it? Romans chapter 1. Look there in just a moment. Look at verse 18 again. We know what's happening. This is the wrath of God's abandonment on a nation which... Isn't that interesting? I don't want to get sidetracked, but is an interesting dichotomy. I was talking to Howard and he... It's interesting how we see Romans, run, Romans 1, the, the wrath of God's abandonment on America. And yet this last week, we saw two great victories. It's amazing, isn't it? Think of that for a moment. In God's wrath, there's victory being won. Number one in gun rights. <laughs> Amen. We like that. If you have one, by two, carry three or four. It's a beautiful thing. But we had victory in gun rights in New York. Think of this for a moment. Where they flash all their gun rights and more people are murdered there they confiscate everybody's gun and more people are killed there in Chicago. This weekend alone, brother. Every week. Every weekend. 40, 50 in Chicago are murdering each other right and left. It's an amazing thing, brother. And yet in this, when God's bringing judgment, which I believe He is, in this, He's bringing victory. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? This uh, thing... And then, of course, brethren, as January of 1922 1973 was one of the darkest days in America's history, it absolutely was. When some men in a robe said it was okay to kill your child. And it was just, what, safe and rare. Now they're out on the table killing them on the table. It's just it's just what happens. It's how it goes. You become calloused and hard. And pretty soon, I remember I watched a video I showed it here one time. They went around some college campuses a couple years ago and said, "Hey, what? Uh, you know, what do you think? How old should the baby be before you should kill him?" And well, well, three weeks, uh, you know, five months, uh, six months. And by the time they were done in the interview, they had found a college camp eye where one of the men, one of the kids, just a lost kid, said, "Well, you should be able to kill him up to five years old. Yep. Well, why five years old? Well, because they're not really cognizant of what's going on. They really don't know. This is what happens." And yet, praise God, praise his holy name. Send her back to the States, boys and girls. Send her back to the States. You know that beautiful doctrine in the Bible called the doctrine of lesser magistrate? That one. That's why, even in our own city, didn't we, brothers and sisters? Elder Dean was there, Vicky was there doing some speaking. We want to clamp down your speech. You can't say that. You're gonna we're gonna quiet, quill the Bible. That's what they're trying to do. And what happens? They pass it in Grand Forks, pass it in Fargo, but here in Bismarck, nay, you're not going to stop us from speaking the truth. Amen? The doctrine of lesser magistrate. We should be in control of that. Boy, that was a little sidekicker there, wasn't it? But it's a biblical truth. It is what happens, brethren. Victory amongst the wrath. It's, it's really quite an amazing thing. But look what God says here in the midst of this wrath, in the, His wrath of abandonment in Romans 1. He says, uh, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and of men who hold the truth. And that word there literally is a spring. We've, I've preached on this. Other men have preached on that. It's literally as holding a spring down in unrighteousness. Because that which may be known of God is manifest in them. For God hath showed it to them. Listen, brother. What did Paul say when we get to the end of it? For the invisible things of him from the creation of the world are clearly seen being understood by the things that are made, even His eternal power and Godhead, so that they are what? Without excuse. When a lost person, you're preaching the gospel out on the street or in your workplace, just speaking Bible things to them, and they say these things, well, prove to me God exists. I, I can't. The Spirit of God has to do that. But I can point you to natural revelation and say, look at this. There is no way this happened by accident, there's no way that happened. in fact, Paul's sermon as we know began with the gospel and he undergirds it here again with these pagans who would certainly understand and know what he's talking about with natural theology, with if you will God's natural revelation look back there now at Acts chapter 14 as we finish this up there's a lot on the plate, a lot that got put on the plate, amen there's a lot to God's word and I haven't even really delved that deep into it just kind of the surface here if you will Look at Acts chapter 14. Look there, if you would, at verses 19, 20, and 21. And there came hither certain Jews from Antioch and Iconium who persuaded the people, and having stoned Paul, drew him out of the city, supposing he had been dead. How be it? But God, I like to put that in there, but God, amen, how be it? As the disciples stood around about him, he rose up and came into the city and The next day he departed with Barnabas to Derbe, verse 21. And when they had preached the gospel to that city and had taught many, they returned again to Lystra, to Iconium, and to Antioch. It's an amazing, stunning thing, brethren. Again, for, what, the second time now? I mean, it's an amazing thing. The persecution against the preaching of the gospel in the book of Acts is relentless. This mob singles out Paul for a beating, which is what they gave him. Amen? An old-fashioned beating. In fact, a stoning. Because he was the main speaker. They always kind of, you know, it's like me, I carry open, I should close, put my shirt over, it, because they'll go to me first, amen, because they'll know I got it. They went right to Paul, because he was the main preacher here. He's the one who was preaching the words that they were hearing, and they stoned him. And after thinking he was dead, they drug his dead body, what they thought, outside of the city. And miraculously, something miraculous happened, amen. God, again, who is the author and giver of life, he is the finisher of it all. He's the one that gives you your first breath, and he will give you your last Here with Paul, the same thing. A small number of those disciples are gathered around him. He gets up and heads right back into the city. In fact, a few years later, brother, Paul himself will write to the Listerians, these people who are there even now, seeing what's taking place, those who live in the region of Galatia. He writes about this very thing concerning what took place in our text here. Look at just a couple of them here, and we'll finish up together. Look at Galatians chapter 6, if you would. Again, Paul, again, this is where they're at, southern Galatia. This is where this community, this area is at. And, uh, of course, Paul, again, writes concerning this uh, uh, alleged stoning, this alleged death that God protected him from. And he he speaks very amazingly about this thing that took place. Look there, if you would, at verse 15. Galatians chapter 6, look at verse 15 as he closes this letter to the church of Galatia. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision availeth anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creature. And as many as walk according to this rule, peace be unto them, and mercy upon the Israel of God. Look at verse 17. From henceforth, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Okay, again, he's referencing back to the beatings, to the stonings, to the things that have taken place. Surely he's referencing this one as he is writing to that general area of the church that's there. Amen. And we remember that a slave, a slave's body was branded to show him to whom they belonged. And Paul was a slave of Christ. He was a doulos, wasn't he? Yeah, he was wearing and bearing the marks of his master. Amen. And this is what part of it was in Lystra when he was stoned. Look at 2 Timothy just real quickly and we'll finish this up. Paul, in his parting last inspired words as God led him to to, to write this to young Timothy, he mentions it again. He speaks of this experience that he's had in this region as the Lord was using him to spread the gospel. Look at 2 Timothy chapter 3. Look at verse number 10. You remember that Timothy was from Lystra. That's where his family was. Verse 10, But thou hast fully known my doctrine, manner of life, purpose of faith, long-suffering, charity, patience. Persecutions, again, he's he's just laying out a list of, of Paul's ministry, the characteristics of his ministry. Persecutions, afflictions, which came unto me at Antioch, at Iconium, at where? Lystra, what persecutions I endured. But out of them all, listen, brethren, the Lord delivered me. And again, this is what we see in our text. Paul, a slave of Christ, a preacher of the gospel, a faithful minister, and Barnabas as well, who was allegedly stoned to death, but God saved him out of them all. He is the author of life, and he stood back up again, as I said, to preach the gospel another time to those who rejected it. It's an amazing thing. Paul and Barnabas's work continued by the power of the Spirit of God. That's it. That's ultimately the source of every man's power, every woman's power. Anybody who's in ministry, anybody who preaches, anybody who teaches a Bible study, your power is in the power of Christ. Not in your ability to speak, not in your ability to tell good stories, not in nothing else. It's amazing, as I close, a pastor friend of mine, in fact he was a pastor here at one time, we, uh, we went to a home one night, we used to go out a lot together, and uh, we went into a man and a woman's home, and the woman professed to be a believer and said her husband uh, was not. Come and share the gospel with us. So we go in there and we're sharing the gospel with them, and that woman become more and more and more irate. The more we talked about the exclusivity of Christ, the more we talked about in Christ alone and faith alone through Christ alone, no works, no nothing. She got madder and madder and madder. And she finally kicked us out of the, kicked us out of the apartment. It was, an, it was an amazing thing to behold. And we're going down the stairs, getting in the car, and I looked at. That old Pastor Steve, and he looks at me and he goes, "I don't know what happened. I mean, it just seems like we, like we were ineffectual." And I said, "Brother, listen. No, we weren't. Mm-hmm. You are not responsible for anyone to respond to the gospel. Yep. Mm-hmm. You are not. And if you think you are, you need to step down and go away. It is God. It is His power. Mm-hmm. It is His, the Holy Spirit of God working." And I told Brother Steve. Brethren, we were faithful in what God called us to do. We did only what we can do, and that is to preach the gospel and leave it to sovereign God. You can't change a man's heart or a woman's heart or a child's heart any more than I can. You cannot take his blindness away any more than I can. You cannot take his his ears that are stuffed full unable to hear the gospel any more than I can. But God, with men it is impossible With God, all things are possible. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we rejoice again in your word this morning. We thank you for preserving it for us. We're so blessed and so thankful that we've not been left here to our own devices. As Spurgeon said, when one does not wander very far from the word of God, you will not wander very far. Oh, Father, we pray. As I think of uh, Mike and Cindy, our brother and sister who are visiting here from Minot this morning, their church up there, Trinity. Father, we pray for all the faithful ministers, all the faithful churches, all the Bible-believing churches, all the elders and their families. We pray that you would keep us ever narrow, that you would keep us ever faithful we might be, as Paul said, a faithful minister of the word. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, and as we are about to gather around the Lord's table here in just a moment, we, those of us who are believers, those of us who you have drawn unto yourself, those to whom eyes have been opened, ears have been opened, their hearts that they might believe, every believing one, whosoever believes, every believing one, who have trusted in Christ as their Lord and Savior. We celebrate this morning around the table when we declare to the whole world that the Lord Jesus died for my sins, that he was buried, that he was raised according to the scriptures, and that he is indeed seated right now, even as we speak as we pray, that he is indeed seated at the right hand of the Father. And we proclaim that he will be there until the last elect of God are saved, which will commence then his second coming, It will commence his glorious victory as he sets his millennial kingdom up. Oh, Father, we proclaim that as we gather together. Father, for those who this morning who are unbelievers, we pray that today will be the day of their salvation. That you will do a work in their heart like you've done in every other true believer. For with men it is impossible, but with God all things. Salvation is of the Lord, Job, or Jonah, and Job himself too spoke of that. So Father, we thank you and we give you all the praise, all the glory, all the honor. For you alone are worthy You alone deserve for the work that you are doing. We thank you now in Jesus' name, and all God's people say.